How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 64 of X-Lapsed, where we are very nearly into the double digits of one of our Dawn of X books. How quickly time flies when, uh, when I guess you're not paying attention. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing Marauders number 9, which had a May 2020 cover date. The story is called Journey to the Center of Pyro, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali. Colors, Edgar Delgado. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale March 4th of 2020. And uh, we, got, we got a bunch to talk about today, so uh, it's going to be... Not quite as heavy as some of the last uh, few episodes, but uh, uh, just the same. We have a lot to talk about, so we'll hop right on in. And we open with the Marauder returning to Krakoa, where, whew, they're given a hero's welcome. Well, Pyro is anyway. Uh, it's like he's one of the Beatles here. Uh, the people absolutely adore him. You know, he passes the crowd of people that are just mobbing him, and he heads to his hot rod. Uh, I guess they got cars on Krakoa now. And atop it lays a very seductively posed Jean Grey. Now they immediately lock lips before doing the whole Danny and Sandy, you're the one that I want bit, driving off into the sunset. Well, actually they're listening to Freebird on the radio, but I like my version a little bit, a lot better actually. From here, a single page of credits. I knew they could do it. Uh, Then a roll call. Pyro, Bishop, Emma Frost, Magneto, Professor X, and the Stepford Cuckoos. No Jean Grey, though. Huh, that's weird. So, uh, yeah, that opening scene didn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense, did it? I tell you what, there's a reason for that, and it's this. Now, Emma Frost has deduced that Pyro has a stowaway lurking deep inside, and uh, she's put these images into our fiery friend as a way to, you know, keep our passenger in the dark. Now, Bishop joins Emma somewhere, and it's like she's watching a stage performance of the scene that we just read, only with Pyro and Jean dressed mannequins instead of the, you know, real deals. She fills Bishop in on some of what she knows and says, hey, meet me at the cove, I got more to tell you. Now, at the cove, we see Pyro stood all catatonic-like, actually mentally, like, living out that scene that we just saw, that weird scene there. Now, Emma tells Bishop that there's a teeny tiny man named Yellow Jacket lurking inside Pyro. Now, inside Pyro, we see what Yellow Jacket is seeing, which is to say, we see a whole lot of lovey-dovey Jean Grey stuff. Suddenly, Pyro himself begins to stir. He's heard everything Emma said, and he's none too keen about having a little man in a submarine floating through his bloodstream. And so he begins to panic, which cuts off the psychic vision, which is to say all the Jean Grey stuff goes away. Yellow Jacket then realizes that it's all been a setup, and he pounds on the sub's enlarge button, resulting in the sub immediately returning to full size, rendering poor Pyro into not much more than a puddle of gore. Eh, well, I guess maybe if they resurrect him again, he might not have that horrible face tattoo, so it's not all bad, right? Huh, now, a blood and body muck covered Emma attempts to force Yellow Jacket to reveal himself, you know, exit the sub and whatnot. To which he does. He does exit the sub, but only long enough to give his cannons some voice commands. And Emma Frost is shot squarely in the face by a blast. Old YJ freaks out a bit and decides to beat a hasty retreat, sending the sub deep into the depths, hoping that he'll be able to make it all the way back to Madripoor. Bishop attempts to give chase, but it's futile to follow the teeny tiny submarine. From here, an info page from the X-Desk, and it's two full pages, two full pages of intel here, which, eh, maybe a little bit too wordy. I don't think they needed both pages to make these points, but 
what are you going to do? Uh, some important stuff here includes the idea that Omanes Verende might poison some Krakoan magic meds in order to undermine the world's confidence in the mutants. Stands to reason. We also get a mention of our CIA agent friend from Wolverine, Mr. Jeff Bannister, along with his suggestion that the magic meds are being turned into some sort of narcotic, likely the pollen that we're reading about over in that book. Also, there are mutants enjoying life in Rio Verde, Arizona. Tell you what, now that we're finally out of the 90-plus degree weather Fahrenheit, at least for the moment, I know I'm enjoying life a lot more here as well. Of course, next week, if, if, uh, if the forecasts are right, we're going to be back up into the 90s, so we'll see. Finally, we learn that there's a big party about to go down because the domain hellfiregala.com has been squatted. And I tried visiting that site so you won't have to, and sadly, it ain't a real page. Uh, I'd have bet money before that it would have just redirected the Marvel's Dawn of X page, but not this time. Suddenly, back to comics and we're back on the beach and... everything's okay. Yep, you see, that psychic vision didn't actually end. And yeah, they got me with this one. Now, Emma, Bishop, and Pyro are joined on the beach by Magneto and the Cuckoos. Now, the Cuckoos are helping Emma amp up her psychic projection, and so we find out that Yellowjacket is still actually inside Pyro's body, even though he thinks he fled Krakoa an hour ago. This is very well done, and like I said, it totally got me. I'm not sure what it says about how easy it is for us to just accept that mutants are sort of kind of disposable, but maybe we'll discuss that a little bit later on. Suffice it to say, when I thought both Pyro and Emma were killed during that scene, I didn't even bat an eye. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Perhaps we'll talk about it a little later on. So, back to the story here. Magneto noinks the teeny tiny sub out of Pyro like so much adamantium out of Wolverine. Magneto comments that they're lucky that Pyro has only returned to Krakoa the one time since all the craziness out of Madripoor Bay. He's certain that Yellowjacket knows more than he ought to and suggests that Pyro be debriefed by X-Force regarding this breach. Pyro just wants to kill Yellowjacket and be done with it. He's like, screw it, let's kill him. Unfortunately, Kill No Man sadly extends to teeny tiny bug men. Uh, apropos of nothing, I really wish they'd clarify whether or not it's Kill No Man or Kill No Human, because it seems to be interchangeable depending on the situation. And of course, that only applies to the mutants that bother to follow the rule in the first place, but I digress. Anywho, Emma and the Cuckoos mind-wipe old YJ, and uh, Magneto hurls him back into the drink so he can head back to Madripoor with, you know, zero new information. Emma informs Bishop that their business in Madripoor is still not concluded. Bishop says, hey, I got some information I want to share with you. Emma tells him to settle down for a bit because uh, she'd like Call Me Kate to be present for this conversation. She then takes Pyro by the hand and engages in a bit of psychic projection, which takes us right into our next scene with the Hellfire Tots, Ominous Verende. They're celebrating their good fortunes and toasting their recent successes. Their party is interrupted by the arrival of a projection of Emma Frost and Pyro. She tells the Tots and their white bishop that their yellow jacket endeavor was a bust. Pyro then makes a little speech about how humiliated he is that they used him before burning all their faces off. Well, for a panel, anyway. Remember, this is all psychic vision-y stuff, so it was just, uh, you know, the thought that counts, I guess. Uh, Emma gives final warning to the kids, don't F with Krakoa. Now, later, we follow Emma to Arbor Magna, which I suppose is where the hatchery is. She's uh, She shows up there. She's informed by Professor X and the Five that the husk they were using wasn't viable, which is to say they are trying to bring Kitty back, and there are complications with that. Emma's pretty bummed out and confused. So is Charles, but the five will keep trying. Now we wrap up back in Madripoor with our old pal Lockheed. He's sleeping in bed with the girl who fished him out of the bay and nursed him back to health. He suddenly gets a wild head to head home, but before he does so, he leaves the girl a gift in the form of a half-eaten fishtail. Again, thought that counts. Uh, we finish the issue with an info page uh, of Beast's Pyro Incident debriefing. In it, Hank McCoy deduces that they need more security. No duh. And also that he won't be going to the Hellfire Gala, whatever that is. That's issue uh, eight, nine. Nine of uh, Marauders. Next episode, 
Welcome to X-Lapsed Cable. I hope we survive the experience. And uh, I also hope, beyond hope, that this isn't just a continuation of Fallen Angels. Please, please, please don't be that. But that's, again, a discussion for another time. Let's get into this issue here. What did we learn? What did we like? What did we not like? To start, another very enjoyable issue of Marauders. This is a book that just won't quit, right? Uh, First things first, big props to Duggan for the fake-out scene. We're going to talk in a bit about all the reasons why that scene shouldn't work. But in a vacuum, and for this issue to play out the way it did, I thought it was great. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. But... Is that a good thing overall? I, I only say that because we are in this, uh, of course, this is Dawn of X, right? We have protocols, we have a whole new landscape, and we have this feeling that death doesn't matter. This isn't a Marauder's problem, this is a Dawn of X problem. And in fairness, problem might be too strong a word for it, right? Um, now, death has been rendered so meaningless that... I mean, we can get full-on scenes of mutant gore and slaughter and just accept it. There's no investment. You know what I'm saying? Is this making sense? I mean, I can only speak for myself. But after the curtain was pulled back here and we saw that Emma and Pyro were still alive, the only feeling of relief I had was that we wouldn't have to sit through another resurrection scene and ceremony. I wasn't worried about them actually dying. And that's a problem, isn't it? And again, problem might not be the right word for it. We've talked a lot about the resurrection protocols, right? As we should, you know? Uh, The entire framework of Dawn of X sort of hinges on the idea, on the concept. We've also talked a lot about stakes and how early on I decided that I was going to do my best to, for a lack of a better term, shift the stakes, Which is to say, not focus on things like life and death, because those are not the point anymore. The stakes reside in everything else. The interpersonals, the setting, the environment, the things that I would usually refer to as the scenery. You know, the stuff that I usually get way, way too focused on. And I feel, for the most part, like I've been kind of good at that. Sure, I'll slip every now and again, but again, for the most part, I feel like I've been able to maintain that point of view. Sure, I'll call them out on, on weird death cliffhangers, but I'm doing my best to shift those stakes to the everything else. But here, I don't know, it's, it's almost like the book is becoming self-aware. And yes, I realize how absolutely ridiculous that sounds, but please just bear with me for a moment. I mean, of course, there are a legion of creators involved, and the book in and of itself is inanimate, but it's almost like our new expectations are being toyed with, exploited. Before Dawn of X, had we witnessed a scene like this, and indeed, there were scenes like this before Dawn of X, we would have perhaps taken pause to let it sink in, right? Consciously or not, I feel like the gravity of the situation would have been something we pondered, even passively. Because this is comics, stakes are always a little bit wibbly-wobbly and nebulous in comics. But even passively, we would have just... It would have stuck with us. Now, though, was, was anybody worried? Anybody listening, were you worried about this scene? Did you think for a moment that it mattered whether or not Pyro and Emma Frost were dead? You know, the book knows we don't view mutant death as being all that big a deal. It's a temporary setback. And so we get a scene like this, and it carries very little in the way of drama and import. Now, our perceptions have changed. And they used that fact in order to craft this scene. Now, I'm saying this in order to give Duggan and company actual props here. They used the parameters of the Dawn of X rulebook. You know, they played the ball where it lied. And the way we all look at things like mutant death to make it seem as though what was happening on panel was actually what was happening on panel. I didn't doubt for a second that both Pyro and Emma Frost were dead here which is why it worked so well. But it's also why it's kind of a problem. And again, I'm using the term problem very nebulously here. It's just a a catch-all for me. Uh, Now, you see, despite my misgivings about the value of life in the Dawn of X books, without the idea that mutants are, for lack of a better term, a renewable resource, a scene like this would not have had the same effect. 
prior to Dawn of X, I feel like if we saw this scene, our spidey senses would immediately start to tangle and we'd be waiting for the other shoe to drop. Here, though? Maybe not so much, right? I'm still not 100% sure where I land on this, insofar whether or not I like it, but I can appreciate it. That's, you know, agree, disagree. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this, absolutely. Um, Next, me being a pedantic prick, kill no man versus kill no human. This is another thing that isn't a Marauder's problem, but a Dawn of X problem, and again, maybe problem is too strong a term. Uh, and, and also, this might just be something that bothers me because I'm a pedantic prick. Now, when the Quiet Council made the rules back in House of X number six, I think, um, now the law was stated as both ways. Jean, Grease, Jean, Gris, Jean Grey suggested kill no humans, right? However, when we finally got our info page regarding the three main laws of Krakoa, it simply said kill no man. And I totally get and appreciate that this is a silly thing to get stuck on. It's certainly not a hill I want to die on. But in the framework of the fantastical Marvel Universe, those two lines can have very different meanings, can they not? If kill no humans is what we're sticking with, then we get scenes like the one in New Mutants where Ilyana killed those aliens because they weren't human. Is that somehow right in Krakoa law? Does that mean it's open season on the Inhumans? Because I tell you what, I don't want to see any of those characters ever again in an X-Book. What about Atlanteans? Can we kill Atlanteans? How about Miracles? Are Quicksilver and the Silver Witch still referred to as Miracles so they could jam them into the movies? Or have they picked a lane on that yet? What about other mutants? Are they okay to kill? Kill no humans in the scope of the Marvel Universe, when we stop to think about it, it's kind of a narrow range, isn't it? And sure, I'm thinking about this way too hard, and it all comes down to the fact that I am way too pedantic, but I think I want some clarification on this. Will this ever be a sticking point for the characters? Like, will we have a scene where Magic's getting ready to kill a bunch of aliens and, uh, and say, Sunspot is there saying, whoa, 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 don't, you can't kill them. It's like, well, they're not human. Well, I, that's not the rule. Will there be a sticking point? Will this be a bone of contention between characters? Probably not. But I'm sure this won't be the last time I kvetch about it. And I apologize for that ahead of time. Uh, back to the issue itself. Uh, because, as we said, I think a couple episodes ago, when you have a book that's this good, it's hard to really add anything to it outside of nitpicking, like I've been doing, <laughs> with uh, with regards to things that aren't Marauder-centric. Um Let's get Marauder-centric here, and I will say that Kitty's Resurrection Challenge is interesting. And I really can't wait to see how it plays out. I mean, I'm not going to play dumb here. You all know that I'm buying these books long before I get around to reading them for the show, but I'm not blind. I've seen recent covers, so I know Kitty will eventually be back with some very, very, very curly hair. I am, however, very interested in learning a bit more about these challenges with her resurrection process. Maybe this will tell us a bit more about why Kitty can't use the portals, you know, why she appears to have been, for lack of a better term, forsaken by Krakoa. It's very interesting, and I'm looking forward to seeing that play out. Uh, overall, I was very, very pleased with this issue. Uh, like I said before, this, this book refuses to quit, and it's, uh, I, I can honestly say it's the most consistently strong book in the Dawn of X line. And as weird as it is to say, if you could only buy one Dawn of X book, if that's your budget or, or your, your mental, your, the, 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 your brain space would only allow you to have one book in this family in your home, Marauders really ought to be that book because it is the most consistent and the most, uh, the most goodest. It's a very good book. <laughs> I definitely recommend it. So that, my friends, is Marauders number nine, the last single-digit single issue of Marauders. How about that? But before we go... Let's dig into the mailbag here, because we got uh, we got plenty to talk about. We're going to start with Damien discussing New Mutants number 7. He says, This was such a fun comic, but it's tinged by sadness, knowing that it's Jonathan Hickman's last issue of New Mutants. I love the playfulness in the storyline. I also like the way the text pages and recaps are used to add more story. And I tell you what, I didn't realize that this was it for Hickman until this message. Uh, I just assumed... 
I mean, we've seen him and Brisson uh, hand off the baton every couple issues. I just thought they were going to keep doing that. I know Brisson was on the issue after this, but yeah, I thought it was just going to be back and forth. That's really too bad. Um, Now, as for the text pages and recaps, they were used to great effect here. Um, For folks who might not have listened to that episode, whole big swaths of story happen in a recap and and they 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 you know they lampshade it by having roberto spoil an issue that never came out it's it's funny it's very cute uh, but as i mentioned during the discussion of new mutants number 7 all that stuff that roberto spoiled us on i don't think that was something i wanted to spend an entire episode talking about so this was a very clever way to give us more story no fluff just just stuff really good really good uh, Damien continues, I also have to take a moment to praise Rod Reese again. The whole book looks amazing. There are so few artists who can draw a conversation with the same dynamicism as fight scenes, but Reese is one. Outstanding. 100% agreed. Uh, Reese is uh, phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I, I just found out Hickman's leaving. I hope, I hope Reese isn't leaving, too. I hope he sticks around even without. You know, even though Hickman's gone... I'd like to keep Reese, for sure. He's fantastic. He's the perfect contemporary artist for New Mutants. He's got... He's oh, he's just great. He's great. He's got... Basically, he's an amalgamation of all the artists you'd ever want to see on New Mutants. And, uh, and is able to pull off some amazing stuff here, just as Damien said here. But uh, thank you so much for the uh, letter, Damien. I, I, always, I always look forward to them. So thank you. Uh, next, we have uh, we have some mail from Jason Colby here. This is regarding several recent issues. And he says, Dear Chris, you've frequently spoken about how you have a compulsion to keep on buying these books. I don't have that collector's compulsion, but I do have a deep, irrational compulsion to reread, or sometimes just read, each Dawn of X book before I listen to you discuss it. Which is, uh, by the way, of explaining what that I've fallen behind, and why I've been scarce for a while. But I'm back, baby, and I have a handful of thoughts about the most recent dozen or so Dawn of X issues. After I send this, I'll start listening to your podcasts on the aforementioned and find out just how redundant my thoughts are. It'll be like a game. <laughs> but th- thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for keeping up, for coming back. Um, I-, I always enjoy see- reading your, uh, your thoughts here, and uh, I'm looking forward to going through it here on the air as well. But uh, I know I'm putting out probably way too much content so <laughs> it's difficult to uh it's difficult to keep up all the way especially when uh when there are reading assignments that come along with it a lot of the times but thank you uh now into jason's message here he's talking about first x-men fantastic four he says chip Zosky is a writer i used to, to really not like i had him pigeonholed as the guy who does funny edgy books like sex criminals that are just not my bag then he wound up on Marvel 2-in-1, and I found myself having to change my tune. 2-in-1 was an under-discussed book starring Ben Grimm and Johnny Storm that was around in the lead-up to the latest revival of the full-on Fantastic Four. This book had drama and heart, and a feel for the characters above and beyond the usual. I was hoping that Zarsky would get the main gig when Reed, Sue, and the kids returned from being lost in the multiverse, but alas, that was not to be. I still remember 2-in-1 fondly, though in part f- for doing more to teach me about what Victor Von Doom is all about than anything since the work of Stan and Jack themselves. There's not a lot of direct overlap between 2-in-1 and X-Men, Fan- X-Men Fantastic Four, but it was nice to see mention of Dr. Rachna Cool, or Cole, a superheroologist who featured in that earlier book and was a pretty cool character herself. And it's funny, um, before reading this, uh, I wasn't sure who uh, Zarsky was. Then I realized that, that this, you know, X-Men plus Fantastic Four, was not the first thing of his I'd read. Um, the first thing I'd read from Chip Zosky was a few issues, a few early issues of the Jughead series out of the, you know, the Archie 90210 reboot for a handful of years back, which uh, really wasn't for me. Uh, not, not my bag and uh, not something I stuck around with for a very long time. I found that Jughead series to be almost tragically unfunny <laughs> and all around not interesting. Uh, I'm glad that I'd forgotten that it was Zarsky that wrote it, because had I not, I probably would have come into uh, X-Men plus Fantastic Four with some some pretty bad uh, baggage, you know, some preconceptions about what we might be uh, about to get. But 
yeah, I, and I've heard about things like sex criminals. Um, I, I, didn't that come out like, like around the same time as that other book just called Sex came out? Yeah, a little edgy, a little tryhard, definitely not not for me. Um, I do remember a bit of a to-do over two-in-one uh, early in the Marvel Legacy days, but uh, unfortunately I was just so, so checked out on Marvel at that point. Um I remember being very excited when Legacy was announced, you know, because, you know, we're going to go back to our roots. I thought this was going to be Marvel's sort of, you know, Me Too to DC Comics Rebirth, which Rebirth, at least in theory, was a really good thing for DC. Um, they wound up treading water for a half decade, but, uh, but I, you know, I digress. Um, Marvel Legacy was announced, and I was thinking, okay, cool, maybe it's time for me to go home. You know, maybe I can come home now. Nope. <laughs> I uh, actually got uh, the Marvel Legacy one-shot sent to me by DCBS, and I never even ordered it. So I don't know if maybe they just ordered like an absolute crap ton of that book to get some incentivized variants or something and just had to give them away. I know that hap- that does happen sometimes. That happens a lot with Marvel books. Uh, I, I I wind up somehow getting a bunch of Marvel books I never ordered for free from DCBS uh, throughout the years. Whether or not that's just them mistakenly throwing them in there, or if it's a, an incentivized deal that they're just trying to push out the door. But anyway, all that to say, I got that Marvel Legacy one-shot, and whew, wh- I, I don't even know what it was. I tried reading it, and it was... It was mostly about Carol, Cap, Cap, Carol Marvel, <laughs> Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. Easy for me to say. Uh, and it was just, it did not feel, it didn't feel like a, uh, a return home. So it, I was able to make the decision very quickly that uh, I wasn't ready yet. So I didn't. But I do remember a lot of positive buzz around 2 and one uh, early on in those days here. And uh, maybe one of these days I'll I'll get around to it uh, because, like you, I, I would I would definitely dig a Zarsky uh, hell a Zarsky Dodson Fantastic Four run. Um, I've talked probably a little too much about my uh, not so much dislike for Dan Slott, but just the feeling that I I feel this weird anger in everything he writes, which is very off putting. I feel like he hates, and, and hate is a strong word, yes, and I'm projecting 100%, but I feel like he has a real problem with most of his audience and is not shy about making them realize that uh, how little he thinks of them. And again, I'm projecting here. I have absolutely no knowledge. I've never met the man. You could be a total sweetheart for all I know. All I know is that I feel an underlying anger when I read something from a Dan Slott or, or a Mark Wade uh, these days. Uh, back to Jason's letter. He says, This book, it was fine. I was hoping for a bigger impact, maybe resulting in placing the Krakoa mutants more firmly in the larger Marvel universe. I'm happy that didn't happen. <laughs> I'm happy that didn't happen. And uh, I can tell you why with one word. S.H.I.E.L.D. For a decade. For the better part of a decade. Not an entire decade. The better part of a decade... The X-Men were basically guest stars in their own book. A lot of the characters in the Marvel Universe were guest stars in their own book because it became S.H.I.E.L.D. and Iron Man. Or S.H.I.E.L.D. And and these are not, you know, they didn't change the titles. This is just me being me. It was like S.H.I.E.L.D. guest starring the Hulk. S.H.I.E.L.D. guest starring the Avengers. Maria Hill guest starring the X-Men. I like the X-Men being segregated. I like them being in their own little fiefdom. I like them handling their own business. I came into this during the 90s. You know, I came into into Marvel, into the X-Men in the, you know, the early 90s where there was very little crossover and when we, when they did crossover it meant something. So you'd get a story as boring as it was like X-Men Avengers Bloodlines or Blood Ties or whatever the hell it was. A very boring story. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it on my shelf now. It's Blood Ties. Uh, boring story. Not a great story at all. It was actually very bad. But it felt special because you didn't see Captain America and Cyclops on panel together very often. You know? 
I, I want to go back to that sort of, uh, I, and I realize putting that genie back in the bottle is difficult, especially with the movies and the media and the cartoons and the toys. But I like it when, you know, you'd go 20 issues of Spider-Man and then you'd get one that's like guest starring the Avengers. And it's like, ooh, now it's like they have to put, it's like almost they have to put on the cover for me, this one does not feature the Avengers, so I buy it. It's I, I like keeping the mutants sec- separate is all I'm trying to say here. I'm taking the very scenic route here, but uh, yeah, <laughs> leave my mutants alone. Uh, Jason continues, that didn't happen, but it was still pretty fun along the way. The heroes have a punch-up before they eventually team up trope is a classic, but seemed not entirely natural here. I did appreciate that all sides involved, the mutants, the Fantastic Four, Doomsie himself, have clear, understandable motivations that are true to their characters. Franklin and Val are themselves full-fledged, rounded characters, which is new to me as a modern Marvel reader. And the Doom Sentinels at K. Latviathans are just plain looked cool. Has this ever been done before? It seems like the kind of thing that must have been done before. Everything else in the Marvel U has been mashed up with everything else in the Marvel U, but maybe Sentinel plus Doctor Doom has been overlooked until now. Anyway, it was ultimately an okay story, but largely forgettable. And fine and okay is probably it's probably how I would put it too. Um, which is unfortunately a bit of a letdown for me personally because I with absolutely no prompting or absolutely no forward knowledge here, I stuffed so many eggs into this basket when it was announced. I expected so much. Uh, going back to my earliest days in the fandom, I, I well, as soon as I found out Franklin Richards was a mutant, I'm like, ooh, ooh, there's something there, you know. And this is 30 years ago. Then we get it, and it's fine. <laughs> it's just there, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it'll be referenced again. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Um, I'd like to see it referenced. Who knows? As far as the uh, Doom Sentinels are concerned, I don't know if those have been done before. They they certainly looked cool. And um, I'm thinking off the top of my head, the X-Men and, and Doom, they don't really cross paths all that often. That's a rarity these days. But uh, yeah, they don't really cross paths. So maybe this is new. And, uh, and if so, I, I definitely liked it. Uh, Jason continues regarding Major X. So, this is what the 90s were like. Moving on. (laughs) I feel like there were a lot less Atlanteans back then, which made the stories a little less boring. But uh, Major X, Major X. Um, For those who only listen to X-Laps, there is a show here every Sunday. For the next few Sundays, anyway, that's called Major X Lapsed, where I look at an issue of Major X. There are seven total episodes. I think at this point I have four up. The fifth will be going up this Sunday. And uh, I kind of gushed over the first issue because it felt like it felt like something of a homecoming to me. It felt very, very true to the 90s roots. As we move on... Not so much. Um, it keeps, I think the way I put it was that it keeps like the vapidity, the shallowness of a 90s comic, but somehow like has this weird marriage with current year decompressed storytelling. So you're getting the most shallow and empty story possible. And that decompression was not in the 90s. In the 90s, if anything, you got way too much to digest. It was very, uh, you know, to steal a term from different media altogether, it was very crash TV, you know, in, in some instances, especially when it was a live field involved. So many things, so many concepts, just so much, um, so much stimuli thrown at you. Whereas with Major X, it started that way. The first issue was very much in that uh, in that sort of gestalt of the early 90s. But then after that, oof, it's like they realized, hey, we can't do this in two issues. You need to fill six. And it's like, ah, crap. So uh, we keep going, and uh, we'll hope for the best. I, I haven't read it. This is, uh, I've only read the issues that we've covered on the show. So I still uh, have to read issues five, six, and zero. So... And I have read part of Zero because it's a reprint, mostly. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, and hopefully, uh, Jason, you'll stick around and uh, and suffer with me. Or, or maybe we'll both be surprised. You never know. 
Uh, Jason continues regarding X-Force. He says, regarding the Xavier's Confession document-slash-data page in X-Force number 6, this one has me flummoxed. What is this document supposed to be? Who was supposed to have written this, and why? You know that whenever I see one of these data pages, I ask myself, would this really exist as an object in the Dawn of X universe? Unless this is a mystery that winds up being solved later, the confession page looks like it fails that test. And I agree. I agree. This is one of those info pages where I feel like they did this rather than actually writing a scene into the story. That's not always a bad thing, right? Um, That's evidenced in several info pages we've seen that have given us great information, including the aforementioned New Mutants number 7, which ate up copious amounts of redundant storytelling with info pages and recaps. Did it very well. But this one, yeah, fails the test. Um, in, In that it you know, as a thing that exists in the Dawn of X universe, it wouldn't be terribly interesting. And just as something that's interesting to begin with, it ain't. Uh, to me, this was just page filler and maybe a way to add a bit of flavor, which ultimately doesn't do all that much. Not uh, not one of my favorites. Uh, keeping up with uh, X-Force info pages, Jason continues. In X-Force number seven, Beast finds a burned bit of paper with a word or name on it in Russian. The 1% of high school Russian that I remember is enough to tell me that the word is pronounced Yetopisyets. And Google Translate tells me this means chronicler. Does this connect somehow with the confession page in the previous issue? Beats me, but it must mean something. And yeah, that info page baffled me from the get-go. I honestly haven't the foggiest idea what it is, or what it might turn out to be, if anything at all. Um... One thing, if I had if I had some extra time, I would go through a lot of these info pages again and just see how many of them actually turned into something. Because uh, some of it might just... I'm thinking about the ones in Excalibur, which are like... And, and, of course, Fallen Angels, which are like poetry. I wonder how many of these actually meant something in the greater scheme of things or were just there to fill a page. It'd be interesting to find out. Uh, Jason continues... Looking at the arc of this title overall, again, this is X-Force, I'm enjoying the Power Corrupts theme that's going on with Beast. But could it have been a little bit more done with a little bit more subtlety? Maybe showed him struggling a bit with ethical pitfalls and manipulating the world and his own team for the greater good. Just showing the tiniest pang of conscience would go a long way here to make Beast less of a caricature. With Plant Man slipping back off into the jungle at the end of issue 6, it looks like Beast's choices are about to come back and bite him in his fuzzy blue behind. I'm looking forward to seeing that play out. And subtlety. Subtlety is not something we often get in X-Force, right? Um, Though, in fairness, over the course of the past couple of issues of X-Force, Percy's gotten a little bit better at that. In 6, though, you're 100% right. Uh, Beast is... he's the villain here. He's the bad guy. No moral quandaries, no struggling, just do the thing because I said do the thing. Um, And I mentioned a couple of times before that I'm hoping that this leads to a sort of redemption arc for Hank. But I'm not confident in the slightest that should it happen that it would play out the way I would want it to happen. Because uh, we can't have nice things all the time, so... But your your point is very well taken here. The, the the fact that Beast is able just to do the thing without getting into his head at all, seeing him seeing him maybe hesitate, it's just do the thing. And I, I don't like that. Uh, Jason continues, X-Men, issues 6 and 7 of X-Men are two of my favorites of the entire Dawn of X era. Both of them tie directly to the themes and actions of Hoxpox and elevate this title back to the extraordinary that I've been missing. And I'm happy you said that because that's one of the first things I thought about in reading these two issues. In an earlier letter, you mentioned something along the lines of how Hoxpox had prepared us for the extraordinary, which was something that Docs didn't pay off. Um, now, issues six and seven were the first yet to give me that old Hoxpox feeling. Which was a great thing. Um, some bad came with it in the fact that... I, I, and I've talked about my insecurities before here, but as I was discussing Hoxpox, I didn't feel qualified to discuss Hoxpox. I didn't feel smart enough. And in issues 6 and 7, I had similar feelings. I had similar hesitations and similar uh, internal monologue that told me that it's like, oh, you're screwing this one up. <laughs> But uh, it gave me that old feeling again. It gave me that fire in the belly, which was uh, 
when you do this work a day the way I've been doing it, you need those special issues. And, uh, you know, if I were to say, like, if we were still going the same way we were going in Hoxpox, if you remember, I think it was three issues in our Hoxpox checklist. Uh, I think it was House of X2, House of X5, and Powers of X6. When you looked at that that reading order, that timeline, the you know the 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 order in which we read these things, those three books were all highlighted in red, right? All the rest of them were white. Those three were in red, and I think I referred to those as like the shoe drop issues. You know, those were the shoe drop issues. But for a better way of putting it, those are the issues you don't want to miss. I think, and I know why they aren't doing this with the Dawn of X books, but. I think six and seven of X-Men should have been red. You know, they should have been those red issues because these are important. They're vital to the story. And uh, definitely, definitely good stuff. Extraordinary is a very good word for it. Uh, Jason continues. In issue six, we have the fun of knowing more than any individual character. Mystique knows that Charles is holding out on her regarding resurrecting Irene, but she doesn't know why. We know why. Can't have any precogs running around blabbing out Mara's secret. Charles knows that Mystique is on the edge of rebelling against him, but he doesn't know her secret. Before her death, Irene had already preemptively spilled some beans, vague oracular beans, telling Mystique to distrust Charles and bring her, Irene, back, or failing that, to burn Charles's dream to the ground. It's great stuff. Mystique has motive, means, and opportunity to do all sorts of bad stuff to Krakoa. As far as shoes waiting to drop, this one has to rate as a size 16 Doc Martin, and I am here for it. I couldn't have said that any better myself. That was uh, very well put. <laughs> 100%. Um, yeah, issue 6 was great. Issue 6 was great, and just... Uh, I know I'm probably saying food for thought a lot lately, but, I mean, that just begs... For uh, for analysis, doesn't it, that issue um, One of the things I got stuck on was thinking You know, all we see here is one conversation Between Mystique and Destiny, right? We see the one where she says There will be an island You will be promised things You'll be let in But your promises won't be paid off We don't know what other conversations they might have had That we aren't privy to, right? I mean, Destiny might have told Mystique how this all ends She might have been the one to Like architect the end of it And there's just so much Interesting stuff in there And It's all going to be true to the story It's all going to make sense In in the scope of, of Comic books of course but It's great It's really really great stuff here And uh, a wonderful issue should have had a red highlight on it in the in the uh, in the little reading order list because it's one you need to read. Speaking of issues you need to read, Jason continues. Issue seven finally has the characters in universe talking about the philosophical questions that have been bugging me since we were first introduced to the mutant resurrection. When a, when mutant death is temporary, why not take advantage? Why grow old? Why suffer through injury or illness or growing out a bad haircut? Why not just hit the resurrection reset button and start over again as your sexiest self? But will the new you really truly be you? Or just look, talk, and act like you? What fundamentally are you? I've been asking these questions, so it's nice to see Nightcrawler asking these questions as well. And he seems to be the perfect character to do it. He's thoughtful, philosophical, religious. It would be weird if questions like these didn't trouble his mind and... Yes, these are the big questions, right? These are the big questions of Dawn of X. And, you know, not to go off on a tangent or anything, but it's scary how if we look at this, we take a step back from Dawn of X here, both narratively and uh, creatively. So we're looking at it in the book and out of the book here. There are no rules, right? I mean, the rules, of course, this is fiction, and fiction is written. Uh, so rules are created along the way, but given that we have this sort of not so much a blank slate, but we have we have two empty slabs of commandments, right? There are no, there's nothing to tell us what's what. So this is a world both in the book and out of the book that has no rules. Like speaking purely of the resurrection protocols, 
No rules, really. That's not always a bad thing, is it? Though, at the same time, without anything to like reel us back in, I feel like things can go out of control quickly. And I've made comments to the fact that, you know, we're killing a lot of people here, and we're not really thinking about it, right? Um, in X-Force, it feels like every issue, somebody dies. Somebody gets beheaded, or someone gets their brains blown out. I think we've read, what, eight issues of X-Force, and we've had, we've had like, what, a half dozen deaths? We've had a lot of deaths in this book. So I feel like, you know, we need rules. Things need to be established here. And I feel like this Dawn of X landscape has a potential to meet a, like, a logistical tipping point. Like, where... I talk a lot about tipping points, but it's like... If you stack too many willy-nilly things on one side, it's impossible, no matter what you put on the other side, to bring it back to an even even keel. So now we have rules. We have a ceremony. We have, a, we have customs. We have Krakoan customs. The Crucible will be a custom. It's very well done. It's a, I have absolutely no complaints about it. I have questions about it. I, I question a lot of things about it, but it's all very well done. And it works both narratively and on a meta level. Because we now have a rule. And it has to be abided by, not only by the characters, but by the creators. You know? So maybe we talk about life having value. I, I spent a lot of time talking about that today. Where, where life really doesn't have a value. Death is a temporary setback, more so than in other comic books. But hopefully, we're starting to get some semblance of rules here. Nightcrawler mentioned that the foundation's already cracking. Maybe something like the Crucible is a little bit of spackle in the crack, right? Maybe it's just something that gives us footing. As for Nightcrawler's questions, I mean, you think we'll ever get the answers? Are, are they even answers that can be given with actual words? You know, can a Jonathan Hickman say, here are your answers? You know, it's not like we haven't seen Marvel's versions of heaven and hell before, right? Nightcrawler even lived in heaven for a bit. Uh, that to the lead up to uh, Amazing X-Men. There was an ongoing series called Amazing X-Men. Their first mission was going to heaven to, to bring home Nightcrawler. And if I'm remembering right, Nightcrawler's own father lived in hell. So, which, you know, maybe that's just kind of more fuel for the fire, isn't it? You know, because Nightcrawler would definitely question all of this. He's the perfect point of view character for, for something like this. I just wonder if he'll, or we'll, ever get any of these answers that we're looking for. Because we know that, uh, I mean, we talked... We talked a little bit, uh, a couple episodes about, back about, you know, the soul. What is a soul? What's a soul in the real world? What's a soul in the Marvel Universe? We know Nightcrawler's soul went to heaven. So we know that souls are a thing. In the real world, I'd like to believe they're souls, but I, there's no way I can prove or disprove it. So it's a... It would be interesting, and maybe it's purposely being kept nebulous. Maybe it's just there so we ask these questions, because we really should be asking these questions. Maybe it's something that the, they're not going to answer. But maybe whatever we decide is uh, is the way it is for us is good enough, if that makes any sense. I, I, I'm kind of talking in circles. I apologize. <laughs> Jason continues. The way Hickman structures this issue is masterful. He doesn't come right out at the beginning and tell us what's going on. He shows us the characters acting realistically in their universe and allows the full horrible knowledge of what's about to take place to break over the reader gradually. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I tried being very conscious of this as I was putting together the synopsis here. I tried... For the first half of the synopsis, I tried to drive home the point that we didn't know what Crucible was. I think I dropped a few comments in there about, like, we still don't know what this is. All we know that it's a thing, and that it would be happening today. And there are people who are bothered by it, and they're questioning it. And and then when the fact, when it, when it you know, the, the shoe finally drops here, and we find out that, oh, <laughs> this is, 
This is uh, someone about to be cut in half by Apocalypse. This is someone about to be run through with a sword. It, it really has so much more impact. And we, we can actually go back and realize, oh, that's why Wolverine has this problem with it. That's why Cyclops is asking all these people about it. That's why Cyclops maybe was afraid to ask Jean how they came up with these rules. Or how they came up with this entire uh, concept of the event. Uh, masterful is a great way of putting it because it, it truly was. It truly was because I was chomping at the bit I was, as I was reading it and I was getting angry because it, it was purposely kept nebulous and that's a good thing. So I'm reading it and it's like, would you just tell me what the hell this thing is? And it's like, well, how do you feel about it? I don't know how I feel about it. You need to tell me what it is first. And then it finally happens and it hits you like a ton of bricks. So well done. So well done. Uh, Jason continues, The crucible itself raises more questions. First of all, why? This could be something as simple and sanitized as a medical procedure or a Futurama suicide booth. But the mutants have made a ritual out of death. It is suicide, but it also isn't. The mutant in the crucible chooses death, but also goes out fighting. A is both final enemy and final friend. The logic is undeniable, yet slippery, like something out of a partially remembered dream. One question that the characters don't ask, but I will, what happens if the mutant fighting in the Crucible somehow wins? And I must say, before I start talking, referring to this as something out of a partially remembered dream is... Wow, it's perfect, isn't it? Because it's so, so crazy. But it almost makes sense, right? It makes sense, but at the same time it doesn't, which is like so much out of a dream. And uh, wonderful way of putting that, Jason. Thank you for that. Um, now, the Crucible in and of itself is weird. The entire concept of the ceremony was very, very strange. And, um, I mean, Nightcrawler tries to rationalize it as being something... It would have been something of a logistical nightmare for the Five if all the depowereds out there decided to just up and off themselves so they could be returned as whole. But yeah, this level of ceremony, it feels... I mean, it feels ceremonial, doesn't it? It's a big show. Spectators and everything. This is like, you know, a moratory te salutamus, you know? This is Caesar. Um, and I gotta assume and or hope that we'll get more of the rationale behind this as we move forward. Because as a, as a performance, as an entertainment event, it's horrifying. And it's, uh, it's scary. And, uh, you know, I don't like talking too much about things like morality, but is it a moral thing uh, to, to, to butcher somebody? Even though you know they'll come back. I mean, the act of doing that. I mean, we have we have Apocalypse here, our, our final our final enemy, our big boss, and our final friend. He's killing people, over and over. We found out there's one million depowereds out there. So, and again, logistically speaking, it's a, it's an impossibility. But the potential is for Apocalypse to murder one million people. And it's just okay. It's weird, right? It's very weird. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, people are going to come and watch this. Public executions of their friends and family. Yeah, weird, huh? <laughs> now, I do wonder what might happen should a combatant actually wind up besting a... That seems like an awfully difficult corner to be written into, doesn't it? But, uh, you know... It's almost it's almost a tough enough corner that it it'll, that it'll almost definitely be written into, uh, and I'm confident that Hickman and company could make it work. So there, there's that. But uh, yeah, issue seven of X Men. Oof, oof, that was a biggie. I, I hope I hope folks, uh, if you guys have the time, would and you haven't heard the episode already, go go back to issue or episode uh, sixty two. I think it was. It's a, it's a heck of a story. Uh, Jason continues. 
New Mutants. This title's growing on me. At the start of the Docs era, I read the first few issues of New Mutants and just hated them. I didn't know how to respond to the jokey, none-of-this-is-to-be-taken-seriously tone, especially of the Hickman-written space issues. But I've learned to love Bobby as an unreliable narrator and to take this book as more of a lark than anything to be taken seriously as mattering on the larger Dawn of X world. It does clearly take place in the same universe. For instance, we hear Cyclops talk about going to visit Shi'ar space at the beginning of X-Men number 7, and then lo and behold, we see him do just that at the end of New Mutants number 7. But it generally doesn't feel like the same universe. In X-Force, Marauders, and X-Men itself, things can get legitimately scary. Bad things can happen. But when our ship, when the ship our young new Mew friends are on gets blowed up by Death Commandos and they're floating in the inky blackness of space, we don't worry. We know nothing bad's going to happen. Because this isn't the book where bad things happen. People get cranky, people throw tantrums, people make cringy passes at and get slugged by hot, hot, hot alien chicks, but nothing bad. Bad is for other books. This is just for fun. Well, first of all, I'm happy to hear that this one's growing on you. Um, the Hickman space issues have been a treat to me. Um, and maybe that's just my uh, familiarity with the characters. That could very well be the thing to, uh, to tip me over to uh, really enjoying it. Whereas if I were new to the, to the X-Men or to Marvel altogether, I, I don't think they would have had the same effect. Because uh, it is jokey. It's, it's a little, uh, I think I called it Deadpool-y. It's a little Deadpool-y. And um, if you're a new comic fan and you're reading Deadpool, you expect Deadpool-y. But if you're reading something that's tied into something that's spun out of Hoxpox, Deadpool-y might not cut it. So I totally understand that. It's too bad that, you know, we just found out Hickman's gone from that book moving forward. So, but at least we got a fairly entertaining, fairly interesting, you know, arc out of it, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very, it's very fun. Um, and I wonder, with Hickman leaving that book, whether or not it's going to tie more firmly into the, uh, the Dawn of X landscape moving forward. It very well might, or maybe it'll just keep doing its own thing. Just don't know. Um, I think I commented last time we discussed New Mutants. What was it? Issue eight, I suppose it would be. Uh, the first uh, Brisson issue uh, on his own, I suppose. I said it felt like something out of X Men Unlimited. Now, uh, Jason, you might not have read any X Men Unlimited, but these were very throwaway stories from the uh, '90s into the turn of the century that uh, Marvel published quarterly. Uh, just X Men stories, usually by new talent. Just cramming as many pointless uh, go-nowhere X-Men stories as possible and New Mutants to me under Brisson's pen kind of feels like that and I hope it finds its footing pretty soon Uh, Jason continues with an analogy do you remember the old Saturday morning cartoon show called The Real Ghostbusters in the cartoon's main stories we see Ray, Egon, Peter and Winston doing their ghostbusting thing and then there'd be these other segments, animated in a simpler, more childlike style, where we'd follow around the lovable yet irritating apparition known to one and all as Slimer, getting into and out of wacky hijinks. Did these bits take place in the same continuity as the main cartoon? Well, yes and no. Technically yes, but emotionally no. New Mutants is the Slimer of the X-Men line. I love that, that's funny. <laughs> and I do remember that show, that was a... Uh... That was a heck of a show back in the day. I haven't tried watching it in many, many, many years. So I, I would be curious to see if it holds up. But that's um, no, a great analogy. It's definitely happening in the same place, but tonally very, very different. Uh, Jason wraps up with, That is, once again, way more words than I had planned to, t- to, to be typing at you. So until Rob Liefeld reboots Squirrel Girl, make mine ex-lapsed. <sighs> Liefeld Squirrel Girl. I don't even think we should put that into the universe, should we? Oof. But uh, no, thank you so much for uh, writing in, uh, Jason. I, I always look forward to your to your missives and uh, your thoughts here because uh, it's incredible stuff. Thank you so much, and I am definitely looking forward to more. So so thanks again. Uh, we're gonna wrap up with a note from uh, our friend Mark Green Lantern HG regarding X Men number seven. He says a very deep and philosophical episode, Chris. I mean, if they don't have souls, are they our X Men? And with all this resurrecting, what's the point of life? And he quotes, here, I don't like my life. Let me die and try again. 
Great job, Chris. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, and yes, the pointlessness of mutant life is... I mean, we talked about it today, didn't we? With uh, Marauders, number nine. It's a Dawn of X problem. A problem with a little P, of course. Um, and I struggle most... You know, it's weird. I'm worried about stuff that I shouldn't worry about. You know, I think... As tenured comic fans, we're used to being let down. Right? We're used to getting all the hype in the world. Then the story happens. And then it peters out. We've all been through it. You know? And we, we and for some reason, we stick around. Some of us, it's a sickness. Other of, others of us, we just, we're just optimists. And I worry a lot about this Dawn of X problem with a little P. How do we walk this back? Can we walk this back when this era is capped off? Now, I give a lot of guff to uh, Bendis, Brian Michael Bendis, and uh, and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it I stand by. I feel like he he will jump on a title or jump into a family of books and gut them, destroy them, fundamentally change them, so he can sell a few extra copies and then just leave. He's doing something right now in the Superman books. Superman's secret identity's out. How do you fix that? How do you get that genie back in the bottle? That's toothpaste that won't go back in the tube, right? Fairness, though, Bendis is Bendis might be best known for a very long, very long run on the Avengers titles at Marvel. He basically reinvigorated them from around, what, 2004 to 2014-ish? About 10 years on the books, and... There were a lot of Avengers books, and most of them had his name on them. But as he was leaving the X-Men book, and I believe I believe he was actually turning them over to Hickman, uh, as a, you know, ironically enough or conveniently enough for this program, I suppose, he actually put the toys away. You know, early in his run, he had killed the Vision. The Vision was ripped in half by She-Hulk or something like that. Well, the end of his run, Vision came back, and he made it make sense. The wasp was sent to a different dimension. At the end of this, at the end of his run, the wasp came back. So he was bringing back things. He he fixed the toys that he broke. Now, for this mutant resurrections, the resurrection protocols, life being meaningless, death being even more meaningless. Are these toys too broken for future creative teams, or? Is there something already planned for whenever Hickman decides to hand off the baton, right? Again, as a cynical and seasoned comic fan, I'm expecting the worst because we're usually given the worst. We're usually let down, or it'll be the devil did it. You know, let's let's make a deal with Mephisto. Let's make a deal with... I mean, we're dealing with Otherworld. Let's get Merlin and Roma in here and just undo everything. Or just make it fit. And go away. Sweep it under the rug. We'll never have to deal with it again. The meaningless of life and death, from which so much of this era hinges... I mean, talk about tough genies to put back in the bottle, right? That's a toughie. And it's something that I I shouldn't worry about because I have no say and I'm just some idiot talking into a microphone alone in my room. But uh, I do worry about it. I worry about how do we walk this back Have we gone too far Um, We talked a little bit earlier about rules And maybe we need some I don't know It's not for me to say It's just for me to wonder why I guess Uh, It's worth noting The script for X-Men number 7 Was one of the most painfully challenging That I've ever put together for this show and actually, you know, the, th- the past three episodes have all been wildly challenging from a content and analysis standpoint. We talked about, uh, what was it, X-Force number eight with uh, the right to die. We talked about X-Men number seven, which also played up the right to die and all the crucible stuff and all the, the faith and hope and religious stuff. And then we covered uh, Excalibur number eight, which led into a, a weird aside with me talking about representation. So it's... <laughs> These three last episodes have been challenging, challenging. Uh, but X Men number seven in, speci- in particular, from soup to nuts, that was like an eight-hour affair. Not even including reading it, but putting together my thoughts, writing things out, 
recording. About eight hours. Eight hours to do that episode. So it was a toughie. So uh, I do sincerely appreciate everyone who's taken the time out of their day to listen to it. It means a whole heck of a lot to me. And I've talked about, you know, I've talked about numbers going down here, which is a very tacky thing to do. And I and I will do my best not to moving forward. But uh, yeah, those of you who listen to X-Men number seven, episode 62, uh, that means a lot to me because that was that one was a lot of time that I didn't have to spend. <laughs> I didn't have that time and I've still crammed it in to get that episode up. So thank you all so much. Um, now, I think that's where we'll leave it. If uh, anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you could do so very easily. I'm at, uh, where am I? I'm at Ace of Comics on Twitter and at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. For show notes and blog posts, you can go to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And there's no hyphen in that xlapsed. I probably should have said that. Uh, there's also our little Facebook group, 90s X-Men, where we talk about X-Men stuff. And then, of course, there's the entire audio archives for the Chris and Reggie channel at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Lots of stuff to hear there if, uh, if you're wanting to hear stuff. It's there. But uh, that's where we'll leave it for today. One last giant thank you to everyone for, uh, for hanging out, sharing your time, and, and writing in such thoughtful messages here. I very, very much appreciate it. When I wake up and, uh, and see that I have some messages, some mail, it, uh, it's a great way. To, to get out of bed It's it's really, really cool um, And uh, means more than I can Actually put into words So thank you all so, so much It means very, very probably means too much to me So thank you uh, But until next time, uh, as always I will talk to you again real soon See ya <laughs>